tell you what, guys, sometimes this book is, it is just full of so much glory and wonder. Um, some of you have read it much and you know, you know that. Some of you don't know that. And I just want to tell you how powerful a book it is. I was, earlier this week, I was sitting in the morning in a comfortable chair reading it, uh, reading Isaiah 24 and 25, which tells the story of what is going to happen in the coming day of the Lord, in the day of judgment that the world is waiting for. Uh, what's going to happen on that day? That day that's on all of our hearts when we, you know, invent all these zombie apocalypse movies and all these Armageddon end of the world movies, that end that we know is coming, what's going to happen on that day? And it gave the most powerful imagery of all of the storefronts downtown being shuttered up because the business was done. And then it gave the picture of all of the music, all of the celebrating tunes that we have in the bars and in the clubs and on our phones and on Spotify and on Apple Music, all the triumphant artists, just the music stopping. And all these victorious sounding performers like Lizzo and Coldplay just stop on all of them. Boom, the music stops. And the, the wine, it says, stops flowing. And the drunkards lament and wail that there is no more wine because the party has stopped. The bars are no longer serving. The liquor stores are no longer open. The drink is done. And the feasting is done. And I sit there in my chair and I just, I read this and I'm just shaking and trembling. And then the Lord says that he will gather his own people up to his holy mountain where he will hold a feast from us, shielding us from all of this that is coming. He holds a feast for us with rich food. I don't know what will be there, but some of the richest foods we've had, even better than that, and new aged wine, it says. I mean, some of you have maybe worked at restaurants like I have and served expensive wine. I don't think very many of us have ever drank. I've never drank expensive, fancy wine like that before, but it will be there. Aged wine, choice wine at this feast, he says. And then he says, there is a cloud hanging over all of his people and he will swallow that cloud up that's been hanging over us and then he says that cloud is death he will swallow up the cloud of death that has been hanging over us right before his people and i'm just sitting there like you know with coffee in my hand just a regular guy just just trembling at how powerful this word is that's how powerful this stuff is and page after page, if you have eyes to see it, can just amaze you more than any summer blockbuster or any great novel or any incredible story from history, what God has prepared for us, the glories he's revealed to us in his word. And sometimes you can experience the glories of God's word like that. Maybe you've had moments like that. You've sat in under preaching that just amazed you or you're at a Sunday school lesson where you're all marveling together at what the word says. Uh, maybe you're reading it on your own and it just amazes you. Sometimes you have moments like that and you wonder to yourself, why did God reveal all of this to me? And what am I supposed to do with it? I mean, it's such a heavy burden to have incredible things like this revealed to you and wonder why God has shown it to you. What should we do with it? And the story we're going to read today gives somewhat of an answer to that question. Why has God revealed to us such glorious things in this book. And what does he expect us to do with them? Shall we just receive them and that's it? Or do we need to do something with them? We'll read a story about a character named Abraham that we've read a lot about recently that will answer some of that. Before we get there, 
Uh, I want to tell you this, this message, the word that God has for us today, is a word for the church. It's a word that assumes you have received the glories of God and you're trusting on the promises of God that you are a Christian saved from sin. Uh, and teaches us how to walk in Jesus' ways. And so if you are here and you're not a follower of Jesus, you want to know how to become a follower of Jesus, I want to walk you through that first before we get to this message that builds upon the teachings of Jesus that we walk in. What I mean is that Jesus has forgiven us of all sin, and we are not walking in these ways to try to earn his approval, but instead we have been given his approval freely, and therefore in response we want to walk in all of his ways. How can you receive that too? Well, as we look around right now, uh, there is chaos in our country and in the world. And we don't agree on much, but there is one thing that most everyone agrees upon in our country. That is that whatever it is, we are doing it wrong. Most of us believe we're headed the wrong direction and that we have messed it up as a people, that we can't seem to get along when we argue about this stuff, that we can't seem to listen to each other and unite together, that all of the work we have done to try to unite different people together is not working and that we are the problem. And so the first thing I want you to see is that coming day of judgment that I talked about earlier. Because of what we have done to what God has given us, we have earned it. You can't look around at everything we're doing and say that we haven't earned judgment for what we're doing. And so what do we do by that? First thing, if if you want to be saved from that judgment, you must look at it square in the eye and be afraid of it. Know that it is coming and long to cast yourself on some measure of forgiveness that Jesus may offer to you. For you could never earn, we could never earn our way out of the hole that we have dug. But perhaps God is graceful enough to forgive us. And the good news in this Bible is that the Lord Jesus himself, God himself, offers forgiveness to anyone who would receive it, anyone who would trust in him. He offers his death given freely on a cross as a substitute payment for our sins so that we do not have to fear judgment. We do not have to fear going before God and being condemned. We need not be afraid of these things. That is the good news of the gospel. We receive through that good news forgiveness, a place in God's kingdom, status as a child of God in the kingdom of God, and many, many good ways to walk in, which we dedicate ourselves to now. This morning, we look at a few of those ways from the story about a man named Abraham. If you would, turn with me to Genesis chapter 18. We're going to start with verse 16. To catch you up on the story, what has happened is this man Abraham, who lived in the ancient world and was very blessed by God, was chosen for great blessing. Uh, he has three visitors come, three men, except they're not actually men. They're actually God and two of his angels. Um, But they're appearing as men. Abraham has figured out who they are at this point. But they still appear as men. They're doing things that men do, like eat and walk and talk and chat and things like that. Uh, Abraham has thrown a big feast for them. He's a great host. They, They come sojourning, just passing through. And he says, oh, come have a feast. Throws a big feast for them. And now it's time for them to get up and go. And so he does the gentlemanly host thing by getting up with them and walking with them half of their journey to the place that they are going, halfway to the next stop. That was the polite thing to do then. That takes us to verse 16, and we'll read this whole paragraph through verse 21. Here's what the Lord says. 
Then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them and set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of earth shall be blessed by him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. These are the words of the Lord. We have here a calling from God to teach his ways to the next generation. What happens in the story, the short version of the story, is that God gives Abraham an inside view into his plans for Sodom. He tells him what's going to happen next to Sodom. Abraham is presumably the only human on earth who knows what's going to happen next. Gives Abraham that inside view, and he tells us why. And the reasons why wind up being true for Israel later on. They wind up being true for us as well. And so what we will do is we will walk through the story from Abraham's point of view, and then we will show how these things are true for Israel, true for us as well, and then spend time considering what it means for us, how we can live and love in the Lord's ways. So like I said before, Abraham's playing host. He gets up, he leaves with his guests, he goes half of the way there. And on the way in verse 17, the Lord says, you know what? I need to give Abraham an inside track into what I am doing here. I need, to, I need to bring him into the inner circle and reveal to him what is going on. The words he says, rhetorical question, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? All right, so he knows what he's going to do. He knows he's going to judge Sodom. He's going to destroy it. He decides, I need to tell Abraham about this. And here's why, he says. In verses 18 and 19, we see two reasons why. The first one is that God has shown Abraham great favor. He says in verse 18, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. All right, so he says, I've shown him this much favor. He is going to be so blessed because what I have chosen to give to him, shouldn't I also let him in on what I am doing? That's half of the logic. The other half of the logic, the other reason is in verse 19, for I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. So the second reason that God is giving Abraham this inside view of what's going on is because Abraham is charged with, is chosen to teach the Lord's ways to the next generation. So God's thinking is something like, well, I have given him great unmerited blessing that I haven't given other people. I have great favor for him. And I'm calling him to teach his children my ways. So it only makes sense that I would reveal to him my ways and what I am doing and why I am doing it. The reason Abraham got that inside track is because of the great favor God had shown him and his responsibility to teach the truth to his children. Those two truths about Abraham's relationship with God, he's greatly favored, number one, and he must teach the Lord's ways to his children, number two. 
those become true of Israel later as well. Some of you know the story very well. We've told it many times over the past few weeks. Abraham does wind up birthing from him a nation, from his wife Sarah, a nation. His grandson Jacob fathers the people of Israel, who we know today as the Jews. And every Jewish person that we have met today walking all over the earth is a descendant of Jacob, Abraham's grandson. So that promise comes true. When they are escaping slavery in Egypt and the Lord is giving them their law, He says both of these things about them, that he has given them great favor that they don't deserve, that he hasn't given to other nations, and that he calls upon them to teach his ways to their children. Flip with me, if you would, to Deuteronomy chapter 7. We're going to read a little bit from chapter 6 and a little bit of chapter 7. We'll do 7 first, though, because of the order of the things we're talking about. This is where we read Moses telling the people of God these two things about them, that they've been given great blessing they don't deserve and that they must teach the Lord's ways to their children. Deuteronomy 7 says in verse 6, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples of the earth who are on the face of the earth. Okay, so of all the nations, he says, I choose you. I'm giving you things that I don't give other nations. And then in verse 7, he says, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all people, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So you see that coming true for them as well. They are receiving great blessings that other nations on earth were not receiving at the time. They got God's good law to walk in and govern their nation over many generations. Other nations didn't get that. They got redeemed from slavery, rescued from slavery. Other nations didn't get that. And he's telling them, I didn't do this because you're better than them. Right? I didn't do this because you're a mightier nation than the other nations I haven't given this favor to. He says, I'm doing it because I love you. I'm doing this because of the favor I have toward you and the promises that I made your ancestors because of the favor that I had toward him. So Israel is in the same position that Abraham was, receiving tremendous blessing that on one hand they do not deserve, and on the other hand, were not given, blessings that were not given to other nations. We flip back to chapter 6, and we see the other aspect of these words to Abraham are also true for Israel. They are commanded to teach the Lord's ways to their children as well. This is Deuteronomy 6, verse 6. He says, And these words that I command you today shall be on your hearts. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. In other words, spend every waking moment teaching your children my ways. That is part of what it meant to be an Israelite parent. So for them... Parenting was not just about changing diapers and getting milk and feeding the children. Parenting was about teaching the Lord's ways while you change diapers and while you get the milk 
And while you feed the children, and while you work the fields, and while you walk down the road, you teach his ways. And while you're sitting down, you teach his ways. And if you got walls in your house, you write his ways on the walls in your house. Whatever you're doing, teach the Lord's ways to your children while you're doing it, as the Lord gives you children. That is part of why they got an inside view. Right? They had revelation from God that other nations did not have. They had the five books of Moses given to them, the words of God that they could go read anytime they wanted to, words that God had written himself. They had access to, and other nations didn't have access. They could learn so many wonderful things about who God is. Are there many gods or are there one God? Well, let's go to the word and find out. Is God vengeful? What is that like? Let's go to the word and find out. They could have their questions, many of them answered, by the revelation that God had given them. And part of the reason why was twofold. Again, they had received great favor from God and they were responsible to teach the Lord's ways to their children. So that is true now of Abraham. It is true of Israel who came after him. Next, I'll show you it is true for us as well. Both of these things are true for us. We've received great revelation from God. And part of the reason why is that we've received great favor from him, unmerited favor. And we are commanded to teach his ways to the next generation. So first, I'll flip to Ephesians 1. Many people, this is a favorite text in Scripture. If you have ever doubted as a Christian how blessed you are by God, Ephesians 1 can set you straight so quickly. Just listen to some of the blessing we have from him. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, so that we should be holy and blameless before him. Now it goes on and on. But do you see there that in Jesus, we Christians have been given every blessing that can be given? One of the songs that we sing on some Sunday mornings is, There is no more for heaven now to give. And that is because he has given us everything in Jesus. Now ask yourself, is there anything you have done to earn that? Is there any reason that he would give that to you? And the hard truth is he has not given it to every human in the world. Why would he do that? Because of the great favor he has for you. Because as Ephesians says, he chose to do, he chose to give it to us. Why did he deliver the gospel to me? and not to everyone that I grew up with? Why did he deliver the gospel to you, but not to everyone? You know, why are there people that don't have access to the word, but we do have access to the word? Can we say that we deserve that? No. No, the only reason that is true is because God has given us favor, because he loves us, and he's so good to us. We don't deserve an ounce of what we have, but great unmerited favor is ours through Jesus. That is something worth rejoicing over. The book of uh, Ephesians later will say it differently, that by grace we have been saved through faith. And this is not our own doing. It is the works of God, not by work, so that no one can boast. We have no reason to boast before God, but instead we just lay ourselves down before him and say, we have been given favor and blessing so far beyond what we deserved. If the Lord had only saved us from hell, let us live out our lives and then die and just perish and saved us from hell. And that was it. That was the only blessing we got. 
we would rejoice at the tremendous blessing we have given us. But it's so much more than that even, right? It's Jesus Christ as our own possession, the Spirit dwelling in us to guide us in this life, eternal life forever in a resurrected body through Jesus, access to his word for many of us, great teachers who have taught us the word, a church family to rejoice alongside of blessing upon blessing such that we can say we have all in Jesus. There is no more for heaven now to give. Why did we get that? Because of God's favor to us. That's the only reason why. So what's true of Abraham is true of us too. We've been given great unmerited favor, even favor that has not been given to everyone. And secondly, it is also true that we are called upon, we are even chosen to teach Jesus' ways to the next generation. Many of you have Matthew 28, the ending of it, memorized. It is the Great Commission. It's a scripture passage that's worthy of committing to memory. It's the last words of Jesus before he rises up into heaven in which he commissions his disciples. He's gathered these men for three years, taught them so much of the truth, And then says to them as he parts, now go and make your own disciples, followers of me, make them yourselves through of all nations and doing two things with these disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And secondly, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So just as Israel was to teach the next generation of Israelites the ways of the Lord, We are commanded to teach the next generation of Christians the ways of the Lord. We preach the gospel, many come, we baptize them, and then we spend the remaining time we have with them teaching them the Lord's ways. That is the calling that is rested upon us. And so both of these things that were true for Abraham and true for Israel are true for us as well. We have been given great unmerited favor by God. And we have a responsibility to teach the next generation the ways of Jesus. That is some of why we have been given so much revelation from the Lord. Because of that responsibility and that great blessing. This is why, by the way, uh, Israel was commanded to teach the ways of the Lord to their sons and daughters, right? Their, Their physical children they were to teach the ways of the Lord to. Now we do that. But we are also particularly commanded to teach it to the next generation of Christians, right? That is why so often mentors call their disciples sons and daughters in the Bible. Jesus says to his disciples, my my little children, he calls, I will not leave you as orphans. Paul writes to Titus and he says to Titus, my true son in the faith, right? Uh, John writes to the churches and he calls the church the elect lady, and he says, to the elect lady and her children, right? That this, this parent-child terms, are they're used for teachers and disciples in the New Testament. Why is that? Why would they use such strange terms? Isn't it weird to call someone that you teach your son? It does feel a little weird. The point of it is that we are to do the same thing for our disciples. We are to do the same thing for the generation of Christians coming after us that Israelites did for their physical children, and that is teach them the ways of Jesus. So you must embrace both of these aspects of your identity 
in order to rightly take your place in the kingdom and do what God has called you to do here in the church. You must embrace that you are given great favor from God, even that others have not been given. And you must embrace your calling to teach the ways of Jesus to the next generation. Is it difficult? It is difficult for me. I wonder if it's difficult for you to embrace the truth that God has given you blessings you did not earn and that he has not given to other people. Is that hard to embrace? I think it is. But we have to embrace it in order to take our place in the kingdom. You have in your hands an English Bible. All of the words of God, cover to cover, in a language that you can read and understand. Most people alive in the earth do not have that. They do not have the word of God in their hands, in a language they can understand. But God has given it to you. You didn't earn that. It was unmerited, and he's given it to you. Many of you have been given for years or even decades faithful Sunday school teachers who, when you didn't understand something in the word, took extra time to slowly unfold the word of God for you week after week so that you could digest these teachings, understand them, take them in. Most people on earth don't have that. Most people in our nation don't have that. But the Lord has given it to you. We have a legacy of faithful preaching in our church, and you have access in your pocket on your phone to enough podcasts of biblically sound sermons that you could listen to a sound and good sermon every minute for the rest of your life if that's how you chose to spend your time. I did the math a couple days ago, and if you subscribe to 350 preaching podcasts and they get updated every week, you would be able to just hit play perpetually and for the rest of your life it would play sound biblical preaching for you. Now there's a whole lot of not sound preaching mixed into that, but I wonder how many sound podcasts there are. Maybe a thousand, ten thousand, way more than 350, I'm certain. There is that much of a feast of good biblical content freely available in your phone. There are people in other parts of the world, even people in our nation, who would make great sacrifices for these things. People on the other side of the world who would give greatly to be able to rip 10 pages out of your Bible, have it translated into their tongue, and take it home with them. Just 10 pages. Or would sacrifice greatly for the opportunity to sit in one Sunday school lesson and learn the ways of God. But God has given us a feast in his word. We have to embrace the fact that he has willingly given us that. This is, none of this is meant to make us feel guilty. It was God's choice to give us that. What do we do? We receive it and we do what he tells us to do with it. We got to embrace that he has given us unearned blessings before we can take our role in the kingdom. It's also true that we cannot find our identity elsewhere. Who you are, if you are a Christian is someone who has received great unmerited blessing from Jesus Christ himself. That is the definition of who you are. Now, there may be other things about you, the clothes you like to wear, the job you like to work, the experiences you've had in your life, but none of those define who you are. Who you are is a Christian. Who you are is someone who has received great blessing they didn't deserve. And that means we can't find our identity anymore. We can't embrace identities that are wrapped up in other things. 
It means you can't find your identity in who you sleep with. You cannot say, I am a man who likes to sleep with other men and therefore I am gay and that is who I am. No, if you're a Christian, who you are is not that anymore. Who you are is someone who has received great blessing in Jesus. We must let go of the identity we had before and follow him and his ways because he has blessed us. You cannot say anymore, I have white skin and therefore I am white and that is who I am. Or I have dark skin and therefore I am black and that is who I am. No, who you are is someone who has received great unmerited blessing from Jesus. That defines you. Those other things may determine something of your experience and your story and some of the things that you have walked through. They may affect your life. We realize that, but they don't define who you are. Neither can we say of any other group of people, these are my people, right? These people who look like me are my people. These people who share my political beliefs are my people. No, these tribes break down in Jesus because our identity is all the same as Christians people immensely blessed by Jesus, given unmerited favor, just like Abraham. That's who we are. And people who have received that blessing, those are our people. The church is our people. So in order to take the place then, we must first embrace the fact that we have been given great blessing we do not deserve. And even uncomfortably, the Lord has not given to other people. And then secondly, we have to embrace our calling to teach the ways of God to the next generation. These are the rising and coming disciples of Jesus, people who came to Christ 10, 20 years or more after you did to teach them how to follow Jesus in all that we do all of the time. That is part of why you have had faithful Bible teachers in your life. That is why you have had men like Butch Tanner and Ernie James and others to preach the word of God to you, to equip you to train the next generation in the ways of Jesus. That is why you have access to the word of God in your own tongue, to prepare you not just to walk in Jesus' ways, but to transfer them along to the next generation, to teach them to the next generation. It is not enough to simply receive the good teachings of God and grow. That's not enough. No, you must receive the teachings, grow, and then pass the teachings on to the next generation. Where I grew up, it was in Florida, and I grew up kind of a country boy out in Florida, playing in lakes and swamps and alligators all around and fun things like that, snakes and all that kind of stuff, Spanish moss hanging from the trees. And I grew up near what's called the Florida chain of lakes. Now, many lakes are not safe to swim in because they get full of algae and bacteria and who knows what else. But the Florida chain of lakes are very clean and very beautiful. And what happens is there is a swamp that was near where I grew up called the Green Swamp. And springs fed this swamp. And there were all kinds of wonderful creatures in it. And you could do, it was almost like the Everglades, like a little bit lower than the Everglades, you might say. The water would flow from that swamp into a lake near my house called Lake Louisa. And it was the cleanest lake, the purest lake I have ever seen. And then the water would flow out of that lake. This is a lake that's five miles across, holding lots of water, but the water would flow out of it through what was called the Crooked River and then down into a little lake called Lake Susan and then another small river and then another large lake after that and then river after lake after river after lake, a whole chain 
that went all the way from Central Florida to the Gulf of Mexico, a few hundred miles along the way. This fresh spring water would flow all the way through it. And because the lakes were receiving fresh water, and the water was not just sitting there, but going on to the next lake, you wound up with the cleanest and purest lake water I've ever seen. You could dip a cup in some of these lakes and just drink the fresh spring water. You could swim in it, not have to worry about mold, algae, bacteria, things like that. It was beautiful, it was wonderful. On the other hand, some of you have seen lakes that have an input of water, like water flows into them, but they don't have an output, right? All the water flows into the lake, it runs off from the rain, maybe a river goes into it, there's not a river flowing out of it. So the lake just collects the water, it grows, and the water never goes anywhere. And when you get stagnant water like that, that does not continue moving down the next link on the chain, you get bacteria, you get algae, you get all kinds of disgusting stuff I don't know how to pronounce. And if you go swim in that water, you will get an ear infection and a rash. It is just gross stuff. Because standing water that's not going anywhere turns sour. It turns bad. Church, we kind of work like this as well. If the life-giving spring water of God's word flows into us and we just swell up with it and it never goes anywhere, well, things don't work as they're designed and things can go south, they can go sour. But if the living water of God's word flows into you, swells up, spends time rejoicing in your heart and then spreads from you to the next person, and the water keeps flowing in and keeps flowing out, keeps flowing in. The Lord teaches you something, you teach it to the next generation. The Lord teaches you something, you teach it to your kids. The Lord teaches you something, you teach it to your friend. When we do that, then the water stays pristine and pure and the lake stays beautiful, worthy of swimming in. We have to do the same thing those lakes have to do. The water has to keep moving. It can't stop with us. Instead, we must pass it down to the next generation. This will look many different ways in the church. If we take up the charge and teach the next generation to the Lord, as many here are doing faithfully, it can look very different. Some of you love kids. And if you love kids, you love being around kids, you love teaching things to kids, and you know as a Christian that the Lord has charged you to teach the ways of the Lord to the next generation, it's a pretty good chance he's called you to teach children. Uh, and that means learning from people like Amanda and Diane and Mary who have mastered over the years how to teach children, learning from them how to do it, spending time as a student of teaching so that you can figure out how to do that craft, how to make Bible lessons come alive and dress up and do costumes and do all the fun things that they do to act out these Bible stories. That's how it would look for some of you, but that's not how it would look for all of you. For some of it, you, it's just becoming a consistent enough Bible reader that you're comfortable in the book and could sit with one other person and read it together and just talk freely about it. This past Wednesday, we heard from a pastor in Texas at our Wednesday Zoom study, uh, a pastor at a church plant uh, whose church cannot meet at all. They can't even do this. Uh, so what they are doing is they are equipping their people to just sit in groups of two because two people can meet there and read the Bible together. You find somebody, you sit one-on-one, -on -one, read the Bible with them. Find someone who doesn't know Jesus, sit on one-on-one -on -one with them and read the Bible with them. For some of you, 
that is what faithful Bible teaching would look like. Just finding someone who knows a little less of Jesus' ways than you do, or maybe nothing of them, sitting with them and reading. Some of you are mature in your faith and should be seeking out younger Christians that you can mentor and focus on. There is a long legacy of mentoring in the scriptures. Most of the great leaders in the Bible had a mentor, often a lesser known mentor, teaching them things. All of the disciples were mentored by Jesus. Most of the apostles were mentored by Barnabas. Titus and Timothy, at least, were mentored by Paul. Probably John Mark was as well. Joshua mentored by Moses. Elisha mentored by Elijah. Not all of the great leaders were mentors themselves, but most of them were mentored by someone else. There's a formula there. There is a pattern there. Raising up the next generation of Christian leaders means choosing one or two people, dedicating lots of time to them. And even if you're not some great charismatic leader yourself, simply teaching people the ways of Jesus. Many studies confirming the confidence that gives people and the abilities of people, like the capacities of people who have been mentored as they enter into the workforce. For some of you, that's what it would look like. For others of you, it would simply look like teaching your own children the ways of Jesus. Christian parenting, like Israelite parenting, is not about changing diapers. It is about teaching the ways of Jesus while you change diapers. It's about looking for the teachable moments while you're warming up the milk and while you're driving to soccer practice and while you're feeding them and even in the discipline moments and while you're playing in the backyard and when you're riding in the car all the time looking to teach the ways of Jesus. That may be your part in teaching the next generation. For some, you are already mature and should be teaching others. Other views, others of you should be looking to grow to the point where you can teach in the future. For some of you, this means formal roles of teaching in the church, and for others of you, it means informal, just friendly discussions with people that teach the ways of God. But no one is exempt from the Great Commission. All of us are commanded to teach Jesus' ways to the next generation. We'll look next at the lifestyle that this pulls us away from and then just a few concrete takeaways before we go. One of the things that plagues uh, suburban churches is what some have called, sub, uh, not suburban, but consumer Christianity. Some of you have heard the term consumer Christianity and are concerned about it. Some of you have never heard it. If you've never heard the term before, it's the temptation to treat the truths of God like just another consumable good, to just treat a worship service the same way you treat a Wendy's hamburger. You go, you pay for it, you take it, you're, you're done. Uh, the temptation to turn God's word into a consumable good, to not see the church as a group of people whose holiness you are committed to, but instead just another place you go, like dance class and all of the other places that you pay for. A temptation is strong among us because living in the suburbs, living the good life here in the suburbs that we get to live, there is a pattern to how we live here. And it's a blessed, good pattern God has provided richly for us. And so if you want to buy something, if there's something you're thinking right now, oh, I really need to buy a whatever, there's a good chance that you can get it within a thousand feet of where we're standing and sitting right now. And there's a decent chance you can afford that thing as well. So many great stores, so many great ways to purchase things, so many good jobs that afford us the opportunity to buy these good things. And so it builds up this habit and experience of go somewhere, lay some money down, consume something, 
and say, oh, that was good, and then leave. And then you go to the next thing. Let's say you go to uh, a restaurant. You sit down, you put your money down, you consume the food, you experience the service, you say, oh, that was good, and then you leave. You go to the mall to buy some clothes. You put some money down. You get some good clothes. You consume them. You take them and you say, oh, that was good, right? You, you sign your kids up for dance class and soccer teams and you pay some money and then you take them to it and they consume it and enjoy it. And then you ask them, hey, how was soccer practice? How was dance class? And they say, that was good, right? Like it's a good life that we live here. The trouble is the patterns of your life kind of train you, right? And without realizing it, well, the experience here at church is very similar, isn't it, right? If you're doing this right, part of the experience is you come, you gather, right? And you give of your money. And you receive the word of God. You even consume it, eat it, you might say. And then you say, that was good. And you leave. You see how similar that is to every other place that you go. So that lays a temptation before you. <clears throat> that lays the temptation before you to treat the word of God like just another consumable good. To forget that these people here are people you are committed to. They are not like the people at the Burger King you ate at that you don't know. These are people you're committed to. The temptation to just treat the Lord's word and the Lord's ways and the church like just another product that is offered. And so how do you do that? How do you go through the church experience every week that is so similar to what you experience everywhere else and not fall into like a gobble it up, me, 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 I'm the consumer type of Christianity? How do you do that? What's the antidote to that? The antidote is what we've talked about here today. It is teaching the ways of God to other people. It is receiving even this message not only with yourself in mind and your own growth in mind, not just to consume it yourself, but with an eye to turning around and feeding it to others. Let it flow in and let it flow out as well. Now you're not treating it like a consumable good. Now we're treating it like the word of God that it is. That is the difference between this meal that we are eating right now from the word and the meal that you will eat afterwards. If you go to a restaurant and buy something after this, you'll eat it and when it's done, you've consumed it and it's done, right? That's how food works. You can't share it after you've eaten it. But this food, you can take it in, consume it fully, and then turn around and feed it to 10 other people. It's miraculous in that way. And we must treat it like the miraculous food that it is, not just consuming it and growing, but teaching it to others. Let me give you a couple of concrete takeaways. If you're hearing this and you're saying, I want to be part of teaching the next generation God's word. I know I have been given much. I want to do it. Or maybe you already are teaching. Many of you already are here. We have some great Bible teachers here. What are some concrete things you can begin doing right now in this afternoon uh, in obedience to this word? There are a few of them. Let me give you a couple. Number one, don't squander your Bible. The Lord has given you a Bible that you can read and understand, and he has not given that to everyone. Woe to us if we are not faithful to read it every day. Woe to us if we are not faithful to attend teaching and to attend to preaching, to pay attention to the preached word and to the taught word. We can't squander this in part because we've got to take it and learn it so we can teach it to somebody else. That's number one. Don't squander your Bible. Number two, be thinking about who it is that you might teach and start strategizing to get yourself in those kind of situations. Some of you are very good at communicating with children. 
Well, maybe you should get yourself into a situation where you have the opportunity to teach children the word. Uh, I have a friend named Keith from a church that Emily and I used to go to who is a master at communicating the word of God uh, to working class people. There's something about the concrete work with your hands mind that he can just, he can put it in concrete terms and they just understand it. It's amazing. And so he teaches a Sunday school class full of blue collar guys and gals who understand the word when he teaches it. What kind of people can you get through to when you talk to people with a certain political bent, people of a certain age, people have a certain experience, people in a certain profession who understands you when you talk? Okay, well now strategize and start thinking, okay, how can I get into a place where I can begin to teach the word of God to those kind of people? The third one, kind of following up on that, is when you hear the word of God taught or when you read the word of God, go ahead and ask yourself how you would say it to those kind of people. If you teach five-year-olds, for instance, and I give you the 20-year-old version of God's word here, you should ask yourself, okay, how would I say that same thing to a five-year-old? How would I word the point of today's sermon to a five-year-old? How would I word this to the college students in my college class that I teach? How would I take the same truth and translate it over to them? You can do exercises like that as you are learning. Not only will you become a better teacher, but you'll actually understand the content of the lesson better as well. And finally, when you are teaching, go ahead and equip your students to teach it to someone else. If you're toward the end of a Sunday school lesson and you know that there are many parents in your class, everyone's getting the concept, like you know we're good on this, spend the last 10 minutes of the class asking, okay, how are we gonna teach this to our kids? And just lead a discussion on how we could teach that same truth to our kids. Who are they teaching? And how can you equip them to teach it to others? Our worship leader, Paul Webb, is taking a uh, seminary class right now on systematic theology which sounds very fancy, but it's just taking the teachings of the Bible and arranging them by topic, right? What's the Bible say about the Trinity? What's it say about the cross? What's it say about the church? You know, that kind of thing, systematizing it together. And it's a really interesting thing that his professor is doing right now. I didn't get to experience this when I was there and he does, and it's so cool. Um, His tests are pretend emails from pretend church members asking theological questions. So he is doing all of this very technical, very hard to understand reading, listening to very deep and profound lectures. And then his test comes and it's a pretend email from a pretend church member saying something like, hey, I hear people saying that Jesus died for the church. And I also hear people saying that Jesus died for everybody. And it kind of sounds like both are true. Can you explain that to me? And he's got to explain it in everyday terms. This really lofty stuff he's been doing, he's got to explain it in everyday terms to get a good grade on his test. That is a professor who's not just trying to teach him stuff, but is trying to prepare him to teach the people who come after him. As we teach those that we teach, we can do the same thing. We can prepare them to teach those who come after him. So that's what we have today. We have a calling from the Lord He says to us, I have given you great blessing, blessing you can't even measure, blessing you didn't deserve, and blessing that is special for you. And I call you to teach my ways to the next generation. Church, let's rise up and let's do it. Let's pray together.